Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. I'm glad to have you listening in. The COVID-19 pandemic launched a thousand conspiracies. Bill Gates microchips, intravenous bleach, horse dewormer drugs, shadowy cabals, and altered DNA. But it has also inflamed a conspiracy theory that has nothing to do with viruses and vaccines. Journalist Kelly Weil has covered flat earthers, yes, people who fervently believe the earth is flat, for years. And she writes in a new book, if Americans were already susceptible to conspiratorial belief before the 2016 presidential election, the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic in spring 2020 optimized them for it. Today, a conversation about the culture of conspiracy believers and why just presenting the facts doesn't work. Kelly Weil is a reporter for the Daily Beast, and her new book is titled Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. She joins us from New York City. Kelly, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. You blew my mind with a poll in the book. That I just couldn't believe. When Americans were asked in the summer of 2020, so we were a few months into uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, they were asked if they had heard a conspiracy theory that said the pandemic had been planned in advance by powerful and malevolent elites. 71% said they'd heard it. Now, that doesn't mean 71% said they'd believe it. I'm just shocked at the penetration for a theory that has no facts attached to it. So I'm curious about what you understand about how that seeped into so many Americans' consciousness. Well, it is a remarkable number. To get such a ludicrous claim so widespread is, I think, very significant for how our society processes information. One thing that people need to understand about conspiracy theories as they work today is that they are really optimized to spread online. The way our social media infrastructure works really prioritizes wild claims. It prioritizes conspiratorial content and content that speaks to our fears and our anxieties. So when something catastrophic happens like the COVID pandemic, and then on top of that, you get alternate explanations for why this is happening, those narratives can be very alluring and they spread very far and very fast among the American public. So so that's not just accidental, the way they spread, because you've talked about how social media algorithms are really primed to spread that kind of information. I, I want to talk about a Facebook experiment that you did in a minute. But what do you understand about why these companies have created systems that grab on to the most conspiratorial information and spread it through, you know, people's experience with social media? Well, you have to understand that social media companies and big tech companies, they exist to make money and they make money by our engagement on their sites. So a website like YouTube makes money by people continuing to watch videos. Now, what videos perform well and what videos keep people on the website, they're often videos with outlandish claims. 
things like uh, Earth is flat, COVID is a plot. And I'll be honest, I click on those videos too. It's very entrancing. You want to know what's behind a crazy video title. But the flip side of that is because these videos do perform so well on the site that often websites, algorithms artificially promote those videos higher up because these programs understand that that's what's going to get attention. That's what's going to keep people on the site. We can keep running advertisements against it. So even if an algorithm was not built with any malevolent conspiratorial intent, simply the uh, the profit in, uh, initiative is forcing these videos and these funny pages up higher into positions of greater visibility. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, we should explain this. There's a lot of noise and there's a lot of different things that you could click on, on these social media channels. But what these, what YouTube and Facebook and some of the others are doing is they keep kind of highlighting it, bringing it to your attention, what, putting it in your feed. Tell me a little bit about what happened when you created, you did this experiment with Facebook and you created this profile named Beth. Who, who was Beth? What did she like? And what did Facebook do about it? So Beth was an alter ego I made for myself on Facebook. It's my middle name. So I wasn't being totally uh, shady about it, but I left her details fairly blank. So there wasn't too much for Facebook to intuit about me, just that I was an American woman. From there, I started liking sort of mild conspiracy pages. <laughs> and what I found was that Facebook recommended more extreme content as I went along. So for me, this illustrated how somebody could have a moderate interest in conspiratorial or fringe content. And then the algorithm of the site would put me almost into a pipeline to the extreme. So you would go from liking things that were somewhat mild, like chemtrails or fluoride in the water, to suddenly being pushed into doomsday conspiracy theories, flat earthism, uh, some quite politically extreme theories. And I found that fascinating that with very little engagement from me, this is how Facebook was um, channeling me through the information ecosystem. I, you know, I found that fascinating too. Uh, I was just going to call you Beth, Kelly, <laughs> not <laughs> Beth. That was your avatar. You know, what they're doing is like sprinkling breadcrumbs. Like, it, you know, if you believe this, you've really got to look at this. Now, where's the profit margin on sprinkling the breadcrumbs? What do they get out of it? Well, Frankly, with a lot of social media sites, the aim is just to keep you online. And one thing that keeps people online is community. A lot of conspiracy movements have a good amount of community built around them. It's a self-reinforcing circle that teaches people that their beliefs are okay and there are other people here to validate them. So by merit of just keeping people on Facebook where they know they can get the good stuff. They know they can get the really high octane paranoia. And not only that, but they can start making friends there. They can start making friends who give them another piece of what they think is a big puzzle. That makes a social media site very central to someone's conspiracy experience. And 
because Facebook is always running ads against you, it's selling your data, that is a profitable relationship for them, even if they don't intend it to work that way. Let me bring this back to COVID and to the flat earthers that you've spent an amazing amount of time with. Uh, You've written about how parenting and pregnancy groups on Facebook have been infiltrated by a lot of misinformation on COVID. And you cite uh, a physics professor who says, parents aren't dumb. There was a bridge that formed between them, particularly during COVID, that was alternative health. You know, Kelly, if you will kind of deconstruct that bridge and tell me how a community of parents who are just interested in parenting information end up being, again, kind of led down or getting interested in these COVID conspiracies. Absolutely. You know, this exact case is very close to my heart. I became a mother in January 2020. And I know exactly how it feels when there is a frightening situation and a void of information. Having this new baby and having this pandemic spreading, and there was very little solid factual ground to stand on, at least in the early days of the pandemic, when even as someone who's relatively well-informed, I'm trying to figure out how to keep my family safe. For a lot of parents, They saw that information void and they went looking for answers. And especially during the early days of the pandemic, the people answering and putting information out into the internet really did not have a firm grounding in fact. These were the people who were in advance scaremongering about vaccines. They were uh, alleging that COVID was a uh, part of a world domination plot. They were pushing junk health cures that wouldn't work, cures that would sometimes even be detrimental to a child's health. So these are the narratives that can seep into a community that is earnestly looking for information. Um, and because, as the word you use, that bridge was established so early on in the pandemic, that there has continued to be a, a, a pipeline of disinformation from quite fringe groups to quite normal parenting groups. So what we might have then is a group of parents on Facebook who have formed, what, chat rooms or communication channels looking for looking for a community to, to kind of fill in, as you said, some of the gaps of, of information here early in the pandemic. How do these alternative health or just flat-out conspiratory junk science people infiltrate a discussion group like that? You know, there's two ways. One, I think, is quite intentional and malicious, and it's something I documented a couple years before COVID. I've seen um, very fringe sites, some with uh, white supremacist leanings, that will very deliberately have a few more mild articles, articles on things about vaccines, which parents are interested in, and they will soften their overall approach and drop this information in a parenting group. That is, I think, a very cynical bid to pull people further toward a political extreme. But often, and I think most of the time, it's not as 
thought out. It's not as deliberate. It it's not a, a part of a larger deception. I think there are a lot of organically driven alternative health um, influencers, people who really do believe that you can cure COVID with turmeric, or at least it's going to help. They're not way off in the fringe, but because they are, um, their audience is in alternative health, they are maybe uh, marketing some of these products. They might have a large Instagram following that they profit from. It behooves them to make these relationships with parenting groups and with uh, other groups that will funnel them money. So it's um they they keep these connections and they stay very plugged into what communities like parenting groups are saying because ultimately that's going to fuel their industry. That's going to keep people engaged with what they're selling, which is unfortunately often a lot of garbage. Yeah. Um, I, I guess what I want to, what I'm thinking about this is as they, as you say, as they drop this information in, sometimes pr- for profit, sometimes to just build a larger following, you know, they also, it seems, have this kind of um, approach that says medical science doesn't want you to know this. These are the things your doctor would never tell you. And 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 I we're going to talk about this with the flat earthers too. It's this perception that I'm in on inside information that the rest of the world really doesn't want you to know. That seems like a powerful lure, doesn't it? It is a powerful lure. And one driving uh, force behind a lot of conspiracy theories is this idea of an in-group and an out-group. Mm-hmm. You are among this select group of people who knows the inside story. You're a community and you are facing off against an out-group, this external, maybe malicious force that doesn't want you to prevail, doesn't want you to know these things. So in addition to allowing people to discard scientific fact or common consensus by saying you can't trust your doctors, that helps drive people further into a conspiratorial community where they say that these are my people and my doctor isn't looking out for me. Hmm. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show and I'm in conversation with Kelly Weil. She's a reporter for the Daily Beast and her new book is titled Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. We've been talking mostly in the beginning of this conversation about conspiracy culture and how social media channels really fuel it. But Kelly has spent a lot of time with people who believe the earth is flat. And when I've shared this with friends, when I've talked about the book with friends, they're like, well, that's probably like 200 people in the world. No, it is a much larger community than you'd ever believe. So uh, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But Kelly, I I don't want to miss the linking as I did in the introduction with President Trump's election in 2016. He was also a kind of bridge, it sounds like, between conspiracy theories of all different kinds and this reinvigoration of the flat earth 
movement. Because even though I don't remember Trump ever talking about believing that the earth was flat, it seems like he gave fuel to, you know, a lot of conspiracy theories that were out there. How would you describe his his role in this? He did. And although I do not believe President Trump was ever a flat earther, I think you're right to touch upon that connection. And what I think is happening here is uh, a very sustained erosion of trust in institutions that can fuel the rise of a fringe president. Trump ran casting himself as an outsider, whether you believe that or not based on his billions. Um, but he ran casting himself as someone who is coming from the outside to uh, defeat the corrupt establishment. Um, that presidency and that campaign, of course, were embedded with lies, but they were believable lies to people who wanted to support Trump because they pushed a narrative that those people were hoping to support. They were looking for reasons to distrust uh, established institutions and looking for an alternative leader, alternative facts. I think there are a lot of ties between that sort of political momentum and the forces that drive fringe conspiracy theories like Flat Earth. People are looking for reasons to discard established narratives like the Earth is round and in their place find some alternate theory that lets them craft a new reality from the ground up. I think you write that with Trump, quote, the fringe wasn't fringe anymore. So so 20 years ago, maybe we were in an ecosystem, an information ecosystem, where things were just so ridiculous that, you know, there'd be people that believed it, but they never really got, well, they couldn't find their community and they never really got that kind of attention. I, I think of the stuff now that is that Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of the others say, and it's, I mean, it, there there is no hesitation, it seems, or shame in promoting absolutely baseless information, which, you know, for people that have been in the media business for a long time, uh, this is this is really hard to grasp and understand it. But I think you have a perch that probably helps you understand it. So how do you explain it? It's It has been bizarre to watch the extreme mainstreaming of very fringe information. And just for perspective here, I've always watched the fringes. I've always been looking at fringe forums. But to see those forums move from just the dregs of the internet to very central platforms over the past uh, 10 years has been very, very stark in my mind. I think the floodgates for misinformation have opened. There used to be, I think, some respectability barriers in how people could put uh, false narratives in the open. And I think a lot of those barriers have disappeared. It's, um, it, it is striking to me that a lot of very prominent politicians now don't govern so much as they work on messaging. 
they are best known not for bills that they propose, but for tweets that they author and for tweets with very inflammatory information. These are people who run campaigns as Marjorie Taylor Greene did after going online and acting sort of as a QAnon hype right. woman. Right. And, and yeah, and I think that a lot of the emotion that a Marjorie Taylor Greene is uh, bringing to a campaign, is bringing to office, it speaks to, again, this erosion of trust in her constituency, people who are looking for someone who is going to tell them something, uh, something titillating, something out of the ordinary and something that allows them to cast away uncomfortable feelings that they might have about, um, oh, about their uh, place of power in politics or um, race relations. These conspiracy theories let people input their own information as they see fit. And that, I think, is what a fringe politician like Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing. I guess I've always... I, I've wondered if a Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or former President Trump or some of the others who promote this misinformation mm-hmm. believe it and are, are, you know, the consummate cynics because they know it isn't true, or whether they are so convincing, and she is convincing, and former President Trump was convincing, because they actually believe it, or... There's just enough, you know, enough space in the theory for them to say, I'm just asking questions, you know, that whole thing. Do you, do you have any determination about whether there is conviction in this or just opportunity? I'm not sure it's an entirely binary relationship there. And I'll I'll explain what I mean, because with a lot of conspiracy theorists I meet, they're able to hold in tension both their theory and information that discredits it. They're always navigating between what they want to believe and what the evidence is actually showing them. And that cognitive dissonance doesn't always knock them out of belief in a theory. I think for someone like a Marjorie Taylor Greene, it is possible to both operate in the real world and to push these theories with a degree of cynicism and also hope that they are true enough to buy into them to a degree. And she had a video before she was a candidate talking about QAnon as if it were absolutely real. I do think she was genuine in that moment. But going forward, I think there is space for her to both believe the sentiment and believe the underlying political um, motivations of a conspiracy theory and to push it as if it's true, but also to have enough grounding in the real world to allow for doubt. So in my mind, that doesn't absolve anybody of their role in promoting a conspiracy theory. I think it makes it more cynical and uh, even less defensible. And malevolent, right? Because there Absolutely. is, as, as I say, opportunity and profit and power to be accrued because of that. That's really what they're after. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is after re-election and power and the money that comes with that. She's raising all kinds of money. She's, I mean, 
when you were talking about there are politicians who really are not are no longer known for legislating, but it's really all about the messaging. For me, she's like the poster girl for that. I, I can't think of a bill, a serious bill, that Marjorie Taylor Greene has put her name on and worked hard to pass. It really is about the way she's messaging, mostly, you know, with live appearances on ultra right media and and social media to constituents and beyond. Absolutely. Uh, I think Madison Cawthorn is another. There was a report a few months ago about how his legislative staff is paltry, but his uh, social media and his promotional staff is booming. I mean, I think for a lot of these figures, they're more celebrities than they are legislators. And unfortunately, with the way that fundraising works right now, and the way that social media incentivizes this kind of lie, I think it's um, it's a very powerful position to be in, even if it doesn't come with much legislative pull at all. So what are the people who believe the earth is flat after? I want to talk about how some people have gotten drawn into it, but what do they get out of this? Just this insider group kind of thing, this community? There are so many reasons people go to flat earth theory. I think the most powerful one is that it's um it, it's an all-encompassing worldview, no pun intended. You can engage with conspiracy theories on a sort of a buffet style. You can take your fluoride but leave your QAnon, but it's very hard to believe in flat earth theory and not uh completely have to remake your view of the world. So what I like to think about is flat earth theory is almost like a um, a factual wrecking ball. It goes mm. in there and it lets you clear out any of your preconceived notions of the world and you can start anew. You can uh, bring in whatever new ideas you want. And in, in that way, it's bizarrely like a creative force. A lot of people who get into flat earth theory um feel as though there's something deeply wrong with the world. They feel very disenchanted. And Flat Earth offers a very literal explanation of what's wrong. It says, the world that you live in isn't as you believe at all. It's all a massive cover-up. And hop on in, there's a new world to explore. You know, what's interesting about that, though, is I think when the world feels confusing or or a or some kind of catastrophe like 9/11 or let's just say a spectacular plane crash feels confusing i guess i understand when there are absent facts the people will turn to coming up with kind of you know factless um explanations i remember a friend of mine when that when that airliner, I think it was a Malaysia airliner, disappeared. Do you remember this a few years ago? Yes. Kelly? Yes. And I was traveling with this friend, and she came up with this crazy theory about what had happened to the plane. I was like, well, hold on. What that was really about was, this is kind of frightening. How could this happen? What if I was on a plane? You know, so she's, she's coming up with theories um, to fill in. Flat Earth, as you say, is so comprehensive that you have to really throw out a lot of your a lot of the the tenets, I guess, of what you know about the world. 
How do you get from here to there? Well, it's interesting because although I think a lot of the tenets of what I know about the world are comforting, right? Mm-hmm. I have always been a, a big dork about outer space and I love learning about it. I love nature. I love the world. Um, but that's not true for everybody. And I remember talking to one flat earther or rather listening to her talk at a, at a conference And she said that she had previously felt very alone in the universe, not just metaphorically speaking, but the concept of an an infinite universe where Earth is small and people are even smaller was very frightening to her. And from a religious standpoint, she really didn't feel special or um, seen in in, a theological eye. And then when she learned about flat earth, which a lot of flat earthers believe that we are on this pancake planet and there's a little dome over it. And that's it. That's the extent of the universe. There's nothing else out there. She goes, and then I realized that I am special and the world is small and I am being seen. And I thought that was strangely logical. It doesn't call to me, but I can understand how if you feel insignificant that this theory um will provide a comforting answer and that the community around it will help reinforce it and will help contribute to that feeling of specialness and um, of being seen and known. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so for someone like that, that you've just described, going off the edge of a flat earth, you don't spin out into infinite space and somehow what you you get caught in the bottom of the dome i mean <laughs> why why is that comforting if you know if you reject this idea of infinite space it's tough <laughs> i have to admit that those don't align with my fears and it's a little difficult right. for me to empathize with that um but you know i think um it if in in the beginning of Lord of the Rings, um, the movies, the hobbits don't wa- want to walk away from home because this known area is very comforting to them. Right. And there's this whole touching scene about them taking the step over. A lot of people don't want to take that step over. And so if Earth is this small contained area and everyone inside it is your neighbor and it's all um, God's creation, there's a lot of very literal um uh, biblical interpretation in the flat earth movement, then I can kind of understand how that would solve some people's um, philosophical and theological questions. And I have to bring this back to one more anecdote from a flat earth conference. I was speaking to a very nice guy. We got coffee. Um, and he said, you know, I'm convinced that the reason they tell us that there is outer space is so that they can teach us that there are aliens. And then when Jesus comes down, we'll mistake him for an alien and kill him, <laughs> which wow. was bizarre That's to me. That's complicated. Yeah. It is complicated, I mean, but it's all wrapped up in this idea of there being this great external alien expanse and that uh, that expanse is somehow threatening to the idea of a God or to um, one's personal salvation. And so again, when you, enclose the known universe into a a, a relatively small space and put this protective dome over it, I think for some people that is appealing. 
I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show. And Kelly Weil is here. She reports on the conspiracy culture for the Daily Beast. And her new book is called Off the Edge. And we're talking about flat earthers because Kelly has spent a lot of time <laughs> with flat earthers. I don't know how you do it. You open the book um, by describing a guy you got to know named Mike Hughes who is into amateur jet propulsion. And every now and then he builds like a rocket and he tries to blast himself off, you know, into orbit. And what the purpose of that is so that he can see for himself that the earth is flat because everybody else who's done this has been lying. Is that, is that what Mike believed? More or less, you know, it's a weirdly scientific impulse. He was genuinely convinced that he could run the experiment himself. He would launch himself up in these uh, steam-propelled rockets, get high enough, deploy some weather balloons, and that would take him up high enough to take a picture that would definitively prove whether the Earth was flat or round. Um, and he did that for a number of years, launching these steam-propelled rockets higher and higher. He hoped to eventually hit this point where he could deploy the balloons. But um, as I write in, in the book, this was ultimately fatal for him, and he died in a rocket crash uh, February 2020. God. Yeah, I, I want to read something in, that, in the early pages here that I, I wasn't aware of. You say, maybe you learned as a kid that people expected Christopher Columbus to sail off the edge of a flat planet. Yeah, I think I learned that. Or maybe you've seen people refer to flat earth as an example of a backwards-thinking ideology held in Europe's Middle Ages. The truth is that by at least the 5th century BCE, Greek astronomers and mathematicians had already determined that the earth was round and had popularized the formulas that prove their calculations. All this to say, Kelly, that, that these... Mike Hughes is smart enough to build an amateur rocket. He's certainly smart enough to find the information that will disprove this belief that he has that the earth is flat. So what, what intercepts that, look, there's a lot of information out there that I could find, and I'm just going to bring an objectivity to it and see for myself. What happens? You know, this is something that's so frustrating for me talking to flat earthers all these years, because there's this misconception that they're uh, unintelligent and that's not true. A lot of them are quite smart, but there's a difference between intelligence and uh, belief. People can discard facts that they just don't want to subscribe to. So for Mike Hughes, he was not convinced of facts that he could not personally observe. And wow. that's the case for a lot of flat earthers. They are always saying that they're running experiments. They will go out into the desert and shine lasers in the hopes that they can um, show that the lasers go further than they ought to on a curved earth. This never works. But even though people <laughs> have access to that information, that that millennia old information, and they have access to this high tech that will let them disprove it, somewhere between their intelligence to run that experiment and their willingness to accept the results, there's a disconnect. And that's what was going on with Mike. Smart enough yeah. to make a rocket, 
but yeah. not fully on board with the information he was receiving. I mean, the weird thing about what you've just said, and, and I think it's important, you said a lot of them do not believe things they can't personally observe. But if you think about the way we go through life and the way they go through life, they have to accept that the food they buy at the supermarket, that there's quality control. They can't see it, but that there's quality control in effect and it's safe and nutritious. I mean, I could go down the list of all the things in their worlds that they have to accept without personally observing. So I guess I wonder, you know, why is it about certain facts that they disbelieve and then, you know, kind of pursue as a conspiracy? Yeah, you're absolutely right to point out that we have to trust. I mean, you can't personally verify everything. You need to trust that gravity is going to be working on the next step and that your food isn't poisoned and that... I use the example in the book that New Mexico exists, even though I've never been to New Mexico. I trust it's there. <laughs> right, um, right. And so I think um, this just comes down to people's willingness to disregard information that they don't personally want to accept. Uh, they can make space for doubt when it serves them. Uh, and we do this every single day. You know, we do need to trust each other's narratives. But they can also bring in skepticism where it uh, helps them further a, a fringe belief that they have. So it's not so much that they are objectively viewing all the facts and taking them on board with the same level of credulity. They're reserving their skepticism for very specific things that um, that affirm their priors, that they already wanted to believe Earth was flat. So they are discarding the information that... Uh, goes against that theory. I'll tell you the thing that really shook me up when you were when you were using some anecdotes and examples of people who had succumbed to flat earth philosophy. These people that would start out as globe firm globe earthers is those are the people who, that's what you call the people who believe that indeed the earth is round, right? <laughs> that's right. They've, Glo they've globe come up earthers, with their own yeah. Yeah, they've come okay. up with their own slurs for it, but globe Earth is fine. <laughs> so, what th this I found really disconcerting that you could f you could have those people, and then in a weekend of watching videos on YouTube, they'd completely throw you know all scientific fact aside and succumb to flat earthers, flat Earth philosophy. I just I don't understand that I. It must have taken you a long time to figure it out. It did. And I think I need to underscore here that there has to be some willingness on the part of the convert because I believe Earth is round and I am not going to change my opinion just mainstreaming uh, flat Earth videos over the course of a weekend. I would need Good some external evidence. Yeah. And I've, <laughs> I, I think I've reviewed the evidence enough that I'm pretty comfortable in my opinion. So the people watching these videos do need to be, I think, initially a little receptive to them. But the the other thing at play here is that um, flat earthers will try and invoke what they call zetetic science. And this it's this idea that goes back to not believing any facts that you haven't been personally able to confirm yourself. 
as we already discussed, that's garbage. You can't live that way. But somebody who's already sort of receptive to flat earth theory will look at that and say, you know what? I never actually have seen uh, a boat set over the horizon hull first. Now they could go look, but they don't. And so that's, um, that misunderstanding of science coupled with a willingness to believe and then further combined with these flat earth YouTubers can be quite convincing. They don't need to offer counter arguments. They can show manipulated data. And for people who are in the right mindset, I think that's a powerful combination and it's enough to convert them to a theory in a a really frighteningly short amount of time. So this brings us back to specifically the pernicious effect of YouTube. And you write quite a bit about this. So I've never watched ever YouTube videos where somebody is spewing out a bunch of conspiracy nonsense. So Kelly, is it that, you know, they will speak directly to the camera and they will bring in all of this kind of shady or out and out misinformation, but they're, they're, you know, bringing it all together and combining it in a way that makes it sound authoritative. I, I, I'm, I want to know why this can be so convincing on YouTube when it's so easy to find out that it's, that what they're saying is false. Well, what's so interesting is there's not even one format anymore. And going back to how um, these videos have become very successful and often quite profitable on YouTube, people have worked out a number of models. So even within the genre of YouTube video, um, of flat earth YouTube video, there's subgenres that speak to different types of people. So yes, there are the videos where someone is speaking straight to a screen. They are presenting maybe a slideshow. Um, a popular image is one that shows the horizon in a way that they argue is, um, is, is too far away to have existed on around earth. Of course it's all made up. Um, but they'll show this kind of evidence. But I think another very compelling form of conspiracy video is um, is one that's a bit more personality-driven. There are flat-earth celebrities at this point, um, people who've come up within the movement and have large followings and have almost their own talk shows. And they'll have this very um, just community-driven atmosphere on their channel. They'll have people coming on and they'll be chatting just like you and I are. And they'll present evidence over the course of this video. But more than that, you'll have a pair or a group of reasonably normal seeming, friendly seeming people all affirming this one truth. I think for people who watch a lot of those videos, it's easy to envision yourself in a a parasocial relationship where you have some kind of uh, friendship with that YouTuber. This happens across genres. It's not just flat earth. And the celebrity aspect of it and the social aspect of those videos, I think, is very compelling for people who um, who take in their news that way in that very socially driven way. So I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that when I've described the book in Flat Earthers, you know, my friends will say, well, how many people could that be? And when I say, no, this reporter has been to convention size (laughs) gatherings of Flat Earthers, like in Denver, 
right? I mean, you, you've been to, you know, a weekend long convention, uh, where it's really just all about flat earth, right? And other conspiracies that feed that. What's that like? It's so weird. Um, I've been to a number of conventions now. Um, the biggest one you mentioned, uh, Denver, there were about 600 flat earthers there. It's a, it's a very strange experience to be one of the only people in the room with that model of the world. We just, you know, that anyone you turn to has a radically different understanding of, of, of reality. But I think going to those conventions uh, as a globe earther almost put me in some of the mindset that flat earthers feel like they inhabit um, most of the time. Flat earthers really do take to heart this idea that they are um, a minority belief system. There's a lot of rhetoric of persecution around them. And I, I, I'm a bit skeptical of that, to be honest. It's, it's not like being a religious or an ethnic minority. It's a conspiracy theory, but regardless of its validity, that's how they feel. And so it was very strange walking around these conventions and knowing that, um, that I'm one of the only people here who believes in the globe. And any conversation I have there is going to have that friction, that little bit of antagonism um, when we start talking about our realities. And that that is probably what flat earthers feel like when they get into these conversations with almost everybody else. So what what is your approach? Are you there? I mean, I know you're there to observe and then to write about it for the Daily Beast or whatever. Do you also find yourself getting drawn into a conversation where you can be skeptical and they will listen to you? Or is that not what you're there to do? It's tough. Um, so I I try and go in with like almost an anthropological uh, approach. I don't really want to disturb their beliefs. I'm not there to debate them. I also think it's, that's not a great use of Useless. anyone's time, to be honest. Yeah. Often, yes. Um, so, but I am open with people. I say, hey, you know, I'm a reporter, I'm a globe earther, but I still want to talk. Uh, I still want to know how you're feeling and why you believe what you do. And I've found that people are actually usually quite receptive to that. Um, a lot of flat earthers feel deeply misunderstood and they want somebody to listen to them. And even if they know that I'm listening with a degree of skepticism, I've had people pour their hearts out to me. And really? even though we don't agree on anything, yeah, yeah. We'll start talking about very scientific things. This is, It's funny. I don't feel like the conversations start personal and then move into debates about flat earth. I feel like they'll start with a couple token arguments about horizon lines or whatever and very quickly start telling me about um, feelings of isolation they have feelings of being the only person who believes this family have made fun of them. So often I don't think that these conversations veer in the direction of debate. They veer in the direction of me learning something kind of sad about their lives mm -hmm. and feeling pretty bad about it. When you met the pastor in Ohio who lost his, his church, his livelihood, because he, what, what was he outed as a, as a flat earther? Had he already been through that or was he in the process of that as you met him? So this was a, an Ohio based pastor 
And he uh, was, he became a flat earther through his church research. He was looking mm. for YouTube videos about the biblical flood and instead it gave him flat earth videos and he said, oh my goodness, that's right. He went to some flat earth conferences, became even more convinced. He decided that he was going to, he said, gently introduce this to his congregation. But before he could, then his uh, his church elders found out about his attendance at this uh, conference and they said, buddy, this is no good. We, we can't associate with you. And they tossed him out and his uh, his church was really his local community. So it came as a very serious blow to him. And what I found through conversation was, well, how does he replicate that community that he lost? He turned mm-hmm. further into flat earth and found communion there. So the reason I asked that the way I did, I, I wondered if there was a moment in his path when, you know, it's the fork in the road. I can re-examine my belief and hold on to my community, my livelihood, or I can just keep going forward because I am so convinced this is true. You know, most of us, when confronted with loss for something we believe in might take a beat to rethink this. And, and, and I, I guess I, I'm very curious about the process that he, now we know where he ended up, but I am, I'm curious about the process of it. Do you know? I think it's very difficult for people who are, um, who lose things to a conspiracy theory to admit that they were wrong. Uh, it's especially with a theory like flat earth that's so all encompassing that he felt like he told me he felt like he needed to share this with his congregation because it was the truth. It was something that they were blinded to. But when people lose a community or friendships based to a belief like that, I think they find it quite embarrassing to contemplate that they might be incorrect. And often rather than turn away from it or even continue to practice it privately, like you said, to have that belief and still keep it to yourself and maintain that community, they will often almost go on a crusade for that belief and say that they're going to show everybody that they're going to prove this theory and that that will bring people back to them. And finally, they'll all understand the same truth. So um, that's, that's a narrative that I hear a lot. And I think that might have been part of a driving factor in this pastor's choice to not just stay in flat earth, but become much more visible in it. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas on Minnesota Public Radio, and Kelly Weil is my guest. We're talking about her new book, Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. You know, the last part of your book is, uh, I have to say, maybe the minimal success that some counselors are having in drawing people away from, from their um, conspiracy theories. A- am I underplaying it, Kelly? Are, are more and more people seeking you know, therapeutic counseling and finding that this is really the way to come back into um, scientific belief? Huh. I... Uh... I wish that were the case, but unfortunately, it's very hard to pull people out of a um, conspiratorial belief. And that's because it 
depends a lot on that person's willingness to leave. So to that end, I don't think people are flocking to therapy because they are looking for help exiting because they don't realize that there's a problem. That said, I did speak to some experts who had some guidance on getting people out. Um, One of the most helpful voices I spoke to was someone who doesn't specialize in conspiracy theories specifically, but is more trained in helping people get out of cults. And she said, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of connective tissue between cultic belief and conspiratorial belief. It's um, you belong to a community that asks you to reject facts and reject the outside world and stay close, excuse me, stay close knit. She said that one of the most helpful things that has worked for her in the past was talking to someone with empathy and asking about the ways that a theory or a movement has repeatedly failed them. Uh, if the, if the conspiracy belief is about uh, an alien craft visiting, well, look at all the dates that it was predicted to land and it didn't look at all the failed apocalypses. And I think for some um, believers that can work Again, it's tough um, and it needs to be done with empathy, but there are people leaving conspiracy theories and cultic movements because they have been shown um, that these movements don't have their best interests at heart. But as we noted at the beginning of our conversation, there's a lot of community online. You know, in uh, 50 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to find that kind of community Today you can. So there's really no incentive, right, to pull away. And what you talked about, this kind of beleaguerment, right, it's I'm suffering for my beliefs, can be pretty powerful for people, right? Absolutely. And you're right that the internet makes it much easier for people to craft these alternate communities than previous uh, previous forms of media. There have been real-life flat-earth cults, but those are few and far between. And previously, those were some of the only ways that you could have that kind of close-knit community. Um, I think one of the most compelling ways to help somebody out of an online community is to keep them grounded in real-world connections that they feel like they've lost. Uh, I think... Online communities can definitely be very powerful, but at the end of the day, often it is talking to other people via a screen. Um, it's very limited in its scope, and the I think the natural element of closeness and conversation and intimacy is often lacking there. I think it is why so many people in these online groups that I monitor are actively mourning the loss of family and friends who haven't followed them. And although it's very difficult, I think it it can be to stay connected with someone who has absolutely fringe beliefs, beliefs that might even be hostile to you. One of the best ways to bring them back is to maintain those real world connections and to give them a firm tie back to reality. And if they do start eyeing the exits of a belief, to give them a safe place to land, not to make fun of them, but to say, you know, welcome back to round earth and you know, you're welcome here. <laughs> I mean, that I think that requires an incredible amount of endurance and patience. I don't know that we all have Oof. it. I have one last question for you. Um, I know you spend a lot of time 
online then checking out these these kinds of conversations. What's what's gaining traction when it comes to conspiracies? What's the newer thing you've seen? You know, the newer thing I've seen is less one specific conspiracy theory and more the confluence of a lot of them. It's what journalist Anna Merlin calls the uh, the conspiracy singularity. When I started monitoring Flat Earth, it was a bit more of a, um, a siloed community. People would talk about Flat Earth and their theories, but it didn't verge too much into, say, QAnon or anti-vax sentiment. Nowadays, when I'm on those pages you get the mix of everything. Um, you'll get flat earth in uh, a conspiracy theory about election denialism. You'll get uh, anti-vax stuff in your QAnon uh, communities and likewise with flat earth. And I've even seen this in real life. I've been to a flat earth convention where QAnon believers were passing out free jewelry and they weren't there because they believed in uh, flat earth. They were there because they knew that this was a good way to cross-pollinate conspiracy theories. So Jeez. less so than I see any uh, any one weird alien cult emerging. Is, um, I see increased receptivity across conspiracy beliefs and people being able to take on all these bizarre and honestly sometimes conflicting conspiracy theories to uh, to hold this broad palette of disbelief. Yeah, well said. Kelly, this has been weird and a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Kelly Wells' book is called Off the Edge. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas, and I'm Carrie Miller. 